And in the midst of the Saul story, it's David's anointing. So this is what David and Goliath, right? The whole Samuel going down to David's family. Uh, So David's anointing is in this section. And so if you're going, hmm, I wonder where that story is. Historically, you're going to find that in 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, you're going to find the death of Saul, just like right at the beginning. The death of Saul. And so, so you can understand David's a huge story in the Old Testament, right? And so there is a lot about David here. This is David's role with Jonathan, right, which is Saul's son. This is David and Goliath. You see what I'm saying? This is David escaping for his life and fleeing from David and and gathering people around him but not choosing to become king. That happens in this section. This part tells us about the rest of David's life. Okay, so David becomes king We see this incredible exploits that he has. Uh, We also see his struggle with Bathsheba and that sin and how that affected uh, his, not only his relationship with God at some level, but relationship uh, with what would happen because of that, because of that sin. His sons would rise up against him and rebel. And so we see things like Adonijah and Absalom and some of those stories. And so 2 Samuel is gonna do that. Death of Saul, but really it's David and David solely. First Kings takes us to Solomon, okay? And so not too long ago, just a month or so ago, we talked quite a bit about Solomon. Solomon's story is found primarily right here uh, in First Kings. And so we see this uh, right after Solomon, right? Things start to mess up and we get the divided kingdom. Okay, people can't come to grips. The kingdom divides, and we watch this, and probably one of the primary other people in the story is a guy named Elijah, okay, one of the prophets. Um, And so we hear all those stories of Elijah in in that regard, in that section. Second Kings, it's a handoff, so Elijah hands off to Elisha, that's pretty important there. And then it's the rest of the divided kingdom. So the second half of kingdom, divided kingdom. And then where we're going to find ourselves today is what God promises to his kings through his prophets comes to fruition in the end of Second Kings with the exile. So if we just had these four, that makes sense. Oh, chronological, that, that's helpful, Right? follows. We get to Chronicles, it starts over again. And that's where it gets confusing, right? You're like, okay, is that in Chronicles as well? And, and so just to give you an understanding, First Chronicles is, it's like Jewish history start over. And you could even say creation. I, I don't know if you can actually find the text of creation in there as much as you do find Abraham Forward. So, and so you're going to get this, this, this whole idea of Abraham and, and uh, going through Moses, going off to Egypt, coming back to Egypt. It's, it's moving really quick. There's a lot of lists in there of the different names of the 12 tribes. So you see a lot of, lot of the history that's even prior to this you're going to find in First Chronicles. And this goes through coming back from Egypt to David. Okay. So it catches up real fast <clears throat> to right here. Does that make sense? And so you're going to find overshadowing here, here 
in here, okay, if that makes sense. And then Second Chronicles is this. It's Solomon and the divided kingdom. I'm too short, too tall for this. Okay? And the difference between this and these here is that this divided kingdom section here is covering both the north and the south. So Israel... Ah, how about an S in there? And Judah in the south. Okay, go to the map. This is my pretty map. Okay, this is water. Okay, in case you're wondering, that's water. This is Egypt. Okay, this is also considered a little bit of the wadi of Egypt. Okay, just so you know that. There's a little section in here we're going to talk not really a lot about the Philistines. So this is... This is actually the Gaza Strip today, in case you're wondering. Uh, Damascus is up here. So you have, well, actually, it's more like here. Sorry. Aleppo is actually up here, which are still towns today, in case you're wondering. North and south, there's a little Jordan River. There's a Sea of Galilee up here. And then there's a little bit bigger sea here, the Dead Sea. Typically, I'm going to, just for the sake, this is the north this is the south. This is Israel. This is Judah. Okay? Petra's down here. That's a really, if you're looking at church history, that's important too. So you see all that. You come back to this divided kingdom. Samuel and Kings talk about, or excuse me, Kings talk about the divided kingdom and deals with both of them. Okay? Down here, it's only Judah. And I think that's what's helpful, okay? Why is that? Well, I think the reason why, that's a lot of writing, but I think that's important for us to see, is that this chronicle section and this section on the kings were had two different authors, number one, and number two, they were written at two different times. And that's the reason why the setup looks like this. The same reason why the gospels are written to different audiences, and because of that, are covering specific things in that. You read Matthew, it's a Jewish context to a Jewish audience. That's why there are so many referrals back to Old Testament prophets and Old Testament scripture because they're speaking to a Jewish audience. Mark is the original. He's just trying to get information down. It's happening in front of him. And that's why he uses the word immediately. That's why he says, then this, and then we did this, and then we did this. It's like I'm writing a diary, but man, I'm seeing so much. And I'm gonna lose it. I remember when I went to the Holy Land before the roof blew off here. And um, years ago, and, and one of the things that my dad says, take a notebook, and we had the old Kodax, every picture, write down what you took a picture of. I'm going, I'm going to remember this. You know, 19 rolls later, and how many cathedral, Catholic cathedrals did you go through? And I was like, oh, they all look alike. I was grateful for my little writing, picture number one. Picture number two, you know, gave me a kind of a basis in that. And this is helpful in seeing this. Let me explain the differences between these. The kings, these, we're not sure who the writer is, <clears throat> probably one of the prophets, that, that would be the, the greatest assumption here, probably one of the prophets that actually went into exile because this was written from, i.e., um, I'm going to guess Babylon. It could have been Assyria, okay? So they're writing this 
after they got sent to time out, if you will, for 70 years. Okay? So first and second kings, right on the hinge of being sent away, <clears throat> he is going, oh, let's trace our kingdoms here. North and south, Israel and Judah. Bad. Okay, good for a while. Really bad. Good, bad, bad, worse. You know, breaking worse, breaking badder. You know, however you want to say it. And then this was written, and this is interesting, this was written when they returned. Okay? I just think, as you, the rest of your life, read through these texts and read something like Chronicles from a perspective of, we have been to the principal's office, and I'm, I'm being very loose here, we got our spankings for 70 years, and now we're back, and will we remember well? Versus, I got sent to ISSP, and now I'm sitting in the midst of what I just did. Does that make sense? And so, the reason they follow Judah is, is pretty important because of the promise of David and the promise to, to Judah and David's lineage. And so, as we start out, just kind of a little bit of a history lesson over some of those things. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go real quickly through 2 Kings chapters 14 through 17, and I mean really quick. There's three chapters in there. We're looking from an Israel view, and so it's going to be in 2 Kings on the last half of the divided kingdom. That's where you're going to find it. This isn't going to be found anywhere else. It's going to be found in this particular section. And we're going to look at about seven kings really, really fast and kind of jump back and give some history to help us understand some of the things that are going on. There's another guy named Jeroboam in chapter 14, verses 23 through 29. I am not going to read it to you. I think you can do that. <clears throat> Point out the highlights to you. Jeroboam II comes onto the scene. He is the next king in line. Um, something that the text, if you're reading it, you don't necessarily pull out of it is that because of some of the things that are happening, and we're going to get to in just a minute, <clears throat> Jeroboam II, as far as the north is concerned, by the way, who's never had a king that did what God said was right, are in a bountiful season as a northern province, okay? And so what has happened is when the 12 tribes were divided coming back from Israel, from Egypt, right? They made the trek back, and then they, they did the conquering of this whole area with Joshua and all this, right? Pretty much, this was the area, and I, that's loosely, but it was farther up here than we realize, okay? That was considered Israel, okay? Because of a lot of things, like not doing completely annihilating people like the Amalekites or the Hittites, or other things that are going on, this is starting to come back. At the height of this, during Solomon's era, when he is wisdom and people were, remember queens were coming from everywhere, <coughs> the lines were drawn pretty strong. They were the player in this area, okay? Obviously, we call it the hand of God on them because of the wisdom there. And so Solomon had these kinds of awesome boundaries going on. That never looked like this again but for a short period, it began to look like this, especially on the north, that this section up here was again secured by Jeroboam during his reign. Prosperity, and we're going to finish with this at the end. How was there prosperity with people for years, even centuries, not following God? That's probably a timeless question 
that we ask when we talk about the mercy and justice of God. And we're going to talk about that hopefully at the end. So the success was at the height of Solomon. Uh, restoration of the boundaries, especially to the north, into Aramean lands to the north. <coughs> Aram um, is up here in this area. And so this section here is what was given back. Okay, There's a guy named Ben-Hadad who was running up there. And then the story happens, Ben-Hadad gets kicked out, and we're going to come back and catch that up a little bit. Um, and so that's going on there. 1425. Somebody got that? This is an interesting verse, and this may surprise some of you. And I'm going to ask somebody to read it. So who wants to read it? Everybody looks down on me right now. I love this. Terry, would you stand up and read this really loud? <coughs> oh, I, I know. You shared with me before, so yeah, exactly. Just this one section talks about the boundaries. <laughs> okay. Well, 14 verse 25. <laughs> awesome. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you, Terry. I, I, I read that verse because we, we see that the reason for the success, for the boundaries to be enlarged and like they were in Solomon's time, was because a guy named Jonah prophesied about this. Before you jump into the book of Jonah and try to find where that's at, it's not there. Well, no, it's funner for you to read it. You know, that was even funner. Jonah, this is one of those sections that's not found in the, in the prophet book of Jonah because that's not the story. But it's interesting to me that Jonah is a part of some of the prophets that are involved in Israel at this time. And I just wanted to allude to that. The reason why Jeroboam Sought, got success is because God spoke through Jonah and told him that I'm going to enlarge your territory. And so that's important. Where did the success come from? The success came from God Almighty, the creator, the holy other, right? This is where the creation came from. So we see that in Jeroboam's time. He was there for 41 years. Um, again, nothing great about him, did evil. Uh, and we see that. Here's the backdrop. I want us to go back to this section, okay? And so we're up here in this time with Elijah, okay? And that's gonna get us to where we are right here, okay? Elijah, you remember the story, we talked a little about it, Ahab <coughs> was a bad king and he had all of his Baal prophets and his Asherah prophets and they had the big battle on Mount Carmel, remember that? It hadn't rained, they're calling down fire, who's gonna answer? God answers, right? They kill all these guys. <coughs> then the rain shows up. The next day, it seems like, or in the next section of scripture, Jezebel, Ahab's wife, hears about it. She is not happy. And she's calling for, let's get this guy's head on a platter, if you will. And then we see Elijah, who was like super confident in front of all of these people from his God, went into a tailspin, right? And, and whether he was stressed, which I can understand, or he was exhausted, which makes a lot of sense, or he was just in fear, what we know is when this happened in this time up here that he hightailed it down here. This is Beersheba, down in the south. He hustles down there running scared, okay? And he doesn't have a car to, to go through tolls with. He is just heading that way. He gets down there, and this is this incredible story, right? God meets him on the mountain. And, he, you know, you see this great wind like today, God's not in the wind and the earthquake. We see all these things, the fire, right? 
and then we hear from God in a gentle whisper. And it's in that section um, that we see this, this incredible, 1 Kings 19, we see this incredible God coming to him. And even after all of that, <clears throat> the reason why he's stressed and he's tired and he's exhausted is he feels like I'm the only person standing for you, God. Ever felt that way? Like, I'm the only one at work. You know, I'm facing this. Or I'm the only, and, and there's that kind of a situation. That'd be awesome. Thank you, man. I will cough all day. Um, and so in regard to that, it's, it's the situation and, and where they find themselves in happening. And so even after all of that, and God appears to him, he still is, is concerned there. I'm not sure if this is, okay, Elijah, you don't trust me, therefore I'm going in a different direction. It kind of lends itself in the text. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. That's Paul Weiss editorial, and so that may not be even close to right. All we know is that there's going to be a transition. And so verse 15, he tells Elijah, after doing all of this, he says, I need you to go back up here. Buck up, young man, and then I need you to do three things. <clears throat> and this is what he asked him to do. I want you to go up, and I want you to anoint a king over this area. This is where Hadad is. I want you to anoint uh, Hazael to be the king. And so what he means by that is I want you to anoint the king over here to take out Ben-Hadad, who's pressuring this. So this is before the country has been grown that way again. So God comes in, and he takes out, Ben-Hadad in another country that's not his chosen people, if you will, and puts another king in place. The second thing he does is, is I need you to take Jehu, his dad's running the king, dumb here, I want you to make Jehu the new king here, okay? Ahab is finally taken care of, he's dead. Jehu comes onto the scene. Ahab hasn't been quite taken care of yet, and this is the key point I want to draw from this. Jehu is to become king over Israel and then I've got a job for Jehu to do, okay? And that's what God has in plan. And then he says, finally, I want you to take Elisha, as we saw here, and I want you to anoint him as the next prophet to take your spot. So we don't give a little commentary for why he does that necessarily in the text unless I'm missing it. But we do know that God is still in control and God has a plan. And these particular commands, specifically the one to Jehu, comes into play here. Second Kings chapter 10 he says this about Ahab, okay? Because of what you did and what I, what, because you did what I asked, and that's to Jehu, he says, Jehu, I have a job for you. I need you to totally annihilate Ahab and his family. <clears throat> Ahab's dead, Jezebel's not dead. There's family, siblings running around. Jehu, I need you to take care of them. And because you did what I asked Jehu, he makes a promise to him. He says, I have your descendants. I will have them sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Either the third or fourth generation is Jeroboam the second. Okay? So this is God making good on his promise to Jehu because Jehu was obedient by getting completely eradicating Ahab and his family. And that is critical. 2 Kings 15 in our text for today says this, uh, and we'll jump to this. So the word of the Lord spoken to Jehu was fulfilled. Jehu was given a responsibility. Jehu fulfilled it. God fulfilled it. And then at the end of that, he says, so the word of God spoke to Jehu has been fulfilled. Your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it happened. It's an important thing. We're going to come back to that. But uh, Jehu is responsible here. Now, he wasn't perfect in all that, and we'll see that later. Or you can look at that and read that later. But that gets us to the point of places like Jeroboam. 
and even his father Jehoahaz and some of those that we kind of skipped. But Jehu to that time was taking care of him. He's eliminating. He gets us to that point. Jeroboam, that's where he finds himself. His blessings are happening because of what great-great-grandfather did, if that makes sense. And so they have been given blessings because of what was promised to their great-great-grandfather to make sure that their line stays for four generations. So Zechariah is a part of that. He lasts six months, okay? He's got four verses in the Bible. Here they are. I'm not going to read them. Last six months, he gets assassinated, okay? When he gets assassinated, there's no more of his family running it. He didn't get assassinated by his brother. He got assassinated by somebody who was not there. A guy named Shalom. Not Gollum. <coughs> Shalom lasts for a month. He gets assassinated. This might sound really familiar, especially in Israel. People getting assassinated and taking over. This is pretty much first part of the king's side of Israel. Okay? A guy named Menahem, chapter 15. He lasts for 10 years. It tells us in the text that Pool, which is actually the Babylonian name for Tiglath-Pileser, uh, who's a well-known name there, and you'll hear that probably throughout the text. He, he invades from Assyria, okay? And he, and uh, Menahem goes out to meet him because they're still pretty, you know, they're pretty successful. They're still kind of a bigwig. <clears throat> this is starting to cave in a little bit. But Assyria, who's a big power out here, is like, we can fight you guys, and he comes to invade, and Minham goes, hey, wait a minute, let's, let's settle this. Let me give you some money, some talents there, uh, according to editor editorials that are written on this section, basically paying for you to hear. Let me pay your soldiers to just bypass us, take out other people, bypass us, and so we start to see this relationship with the Assyrians, which again is foreshadowing to what is going to come. And so he basically hires soldiers to strengthen his kingdom, says, hey, on my watch, we're looking good. This is fine. And by doing this, he, he decided, where am I going to get the money? <clears throat> so they started a lottery. No, wait, they didn't start a lottery. They started taxing people. Same thing. Um, and that really works, by the way. I'm sorry, that was probably too far. Okay, and so we see that. Pekahiah is the next guy, okay? And uh, he lasts for two years. He's assassinated by one of his officers, now, we see all these listings, and I just need to make this clear, that a lot of these, even though the assassination finally happens, there was like co-ruling happening. There was, there was a little bit of, well, I don't care. We're not going to follow you, you know, over here in Stillwater. We're going to do what we want to do. And so that was happening. So when you read the text and you start to do the numbers, you're going to get confused because sometimes there's an overlap of some of that, and especially with the other kings. But Pekah does that. <coughs> he la he's, a, <coughs> he's an officer to Pekahiah doesn't like it, assassinates him. He goes for 20 years. Tiglath-Pileser is still up there in Assyria. He's still running rabbit. He, he is enlarging his territory, and it's slowly coming down. Is about to swallow Israel, and it will. Um, so he takes towns and begins to deport people to Assyria. So he, he starts working. And, you know, I'm, I'm just using an example, but he starts taking these people, taking them this way deporting them. He gets down into Gilead, which is even part of Judah. And, um, and um, again, part of Jeroboam's success was not only he was the kingpin, but these guys were, the, the south's Judean kings were starting to be vassals to him as well. And so some of the, these places here he had occupation in, and those things were being taken away this direction towards Assyria by Tiglath-Pileser. And so that's taking place during his time. 2 Kings 17 
huge chapter here. A guy named Hoshea. There has to be a little bit of the Jehovah saves, Joshua, Jesus picture there. Hoshea is a name. Uh, he has a nine-year reign. He is completely a vassal king. He is puppet king in the making to Tiglath-Pileser. A guy named Tiglath-Pileser goes away and Shalmaneser becomes <clears throat> the king of Assyria. Um, and he attacks partly. They were okay with the vassal thing. We're going to leave you guys. <clears throat> we just want to be able to work trade. <clears throat> this is a major trade route. You know, this would be a better trade route, but we're okay with doing this, coming through here and making trade with people. And um, Hoshea, who was a vassal king, thought, why are we doing this? He goes, seeks help from Egypt, which is a joke because Egypt is not known for their prowess in military battle. But he goes and he says, I'm not going to pay you guys any money. I'm going to pay them. And he goes, okay, that's fine. You do that. I'm coming in. He lays siege for three years, it tells us. For three years, they're attacking Israel. And finally, after that three-year siege, they are deported to Israel to, tells us, Assyria, and then some into the Medes. And so I don't know how that, it's probably this section here, different places. The initial first part, they were sending them and using them into, as part of their soldiers. They were taking the, uh, the more educated, the stronger but as it got down to the remnant, they were just taking them in and landing them in this place here and saying, good luck, hope you can find some food. And that's how they took care of them in that setting here. Assyria, which places like Isaiah tell us that God ordained for Assyria to, be, to rise at this level. Don't forget what God told Elijah to do. That I want you to raise up Hazael, you know, and Jehu, in Elisha for that moment. God is always ahead of what we think and definitely ahead of the people in this time. God was already working. And it's awesome to read scripture and to see even though in the judgments and the challenges and the cry for repentance of the people, he is already preparing a plan. And I think it's important for us to understand the creator, the timeless one, the one who spoke and put everything into being has had a plan. And that plan is what we're a part of today because this is our story. Assyria, just some sidebars there. They were crazy warriors. I know I, know I remember history and reading about Genghis Khan and some of the atrocities of those kinds of history things. Always kind of intrigued me because I'm a guy, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, a Braveheart kind of moment. Um, Assyria had that kind of a warfare mentality, very <clears throat> psychological in their warfare. They would do some dirty, bust them up fighting, but a lot of times they just posed and then they did something and let you sit on that and let the fear just ruminate, when are they going to show up? And so some of the things they did, they showed up with massive armies. I mean, they just go and you, you look over some shepherd would look over and see this plane and there would just be literally thousands, of, hundreds of thousands of people moving towards them. Uh, and, and so the fear just literally shook the people in that moment. Some of the things they did, and it's really interesting because you see these displayed, displayed a lot of times in Braveheart type movies or even the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, but you would see they would have corpses impaled on stakes and they just leave them at just major inroads just to let you know we're here, we're, we're out here. Another thing they do, they would stack heads that they would cut and they would stack them 
in, in sections and leave them for people to be in fear. They would also take captives and skin them alive. And so very psychological. They, they were not doing that across the board, but they were doing it, and people were like, okay, we'll come. You see what I'm saying? And so that was Assyria. Don't, don't root for Assyria in this moment here, even though God is using them uh, in this place. There's another interesting parallel, and, and, and I think this is kind of um, important for us to see because when we look at history books, um, we studied in uh, you know, American history or world geography, and, and we're looking through the facts of, that are in front of us. You know what I'm saying? And, and you read that. I mean, uh, I love to study World War II, and so I love to, what happened on this day and, and see what was the strategy behind how we moved, in, you know, moved across these areas. And so I, I like to see it from that perspective. That's a very cultural way that we look at things. They, in their context, in writing this, this again, this is after it's already happened, right? And he's writing this as they are now facing the consequences of what they did. And he's also writing in um, a parabolic kind of way, an allegorical kind of way, an analogy kind of way. And so it's important for us to see that. And some of the parallels we see is interesting. We get this, uh, I know... uh, Vincent did a, a chiasm literary device that we see in Scripture. Um, here's one. It's just called a parallel, okay? And it's really interesting, I think, is that we see Jeroboam the first, right? Then we see seven kings. We're going to blow away. Seven kings. And then the seventh king is Ahab. Okay, and then Jehu, again, why I told the story, raised up to take care and totally annihilate that. I think it's really interesting, right? This is Israel. Are these God's people? Yeah. And so he has got prophets, he's got kings, he's trying to speak truth to them, repent, repent, repent for hundreds of years. Ahab just takes the cake. Jezebel is crazyville raises up Jehu, and in the following kings here, he takes care of that. And it's almost like, let's start over. So we got Jeroboam the second. Okay? No relation. Okay? Seven kings. I gotta check my notes, make sure I'm saying it right. Um, yeah. Hoshea. Okay, Hoshea doesn't work out, exile, Assyria, okay? And I think it's interesting to see the parallelism, see what I'm saying? It's, it's, there's a parallel what's happening. He tries to, hey, I can take care of this in-house, right? Let's just, hey, we'll settle our dispute, no need to call the police, right? Didn't work, <laughs> give you another opportunity, didn't work, we'll take it outside of here even though all along he was preparing for that. And I think that's an interesting picture of what is taking place. The first parallel is this idea of initiating the separate history of Israel. You know what? You messed up, Jeroboam. Now we have a divided kingdom, right? We're trying to get you to repent, to get back to the good graces of what God has called you to, to his covenant. They don't do it. So we get another opportunity, and now we see this countdown. 
where it's not going to get any better and we're countdowning to the end of your history as far as we know it uh, as the northern section of Israel. I want to take the last of our time and talk about some of the prophets in this moment. Again, we're in the north. And so in the north we've had some incredible prophets that we get all of our information about them in the history. We don't, have any, uh, <clears throat> we don't have any books written by them, right, that we have in our canon, right? There's no Jeremiah, there's no Isaiah. Elijah and Elisha are pretty powerful prophets, but we don't hear a lot of the laments and the oracles that they give if they gave those. We, what we have is recorded in the history section uh, with the kings. In this section, like I mentioned, we have Jonah, right? We have Amos in this section, and we have Hosea, and then I'm going to, this is debatable, but I'm going to try to prove my point here with Isaiah a little bit. Um, Jonah, we talked about that section that Terry read in chapter 14, you know, where uh, they, God allowed Jeroboam uh, to enlarge the territory because Jonah prophesied on behalf of God for them. But we know the Jonah story, right? It happened during this time frame. The important thing about Jonah, what did he do? We know the story, right? Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, right? Anybody know where Nineveh is? It's over here, okay? He's here. He gets on a boat and goes that way, okay? He goes opposite. We know the story. He goes to Nineveh, and what happens? He preaches, and they kill him? No, they repent. These people repent, at least for the moment. It's really interesting. We know how Jonah reacts to that. He's like, okay, these are, these are our nemesis. You want me to preach to our nemesis? I'm preaching, and they repent, and Jonah is not happy about it, right? He kind of throws a hissy fit about it. There's a little bit of a story there. Um, And yet God uses Jonah um, so that Nineveh would repent, even though short-lived. This is where the tension of justice and mercy is. I want you to to wrestle with that a little bit, because I know I do. Why would God send a prophet of his to this area, to a people that seemed to be against what God stood for so that they would repent for a season until what? Until they were in place to do what? To take the people of Israel to their country. That was Jonah's role as a prophet. Um, And it's very, very interesting to read and to wrestle with that. Again, hopefully we'll talk a little bit about this at the end. Amos. Amos is one of really the only two prophets that we have books about, right, from the the major minor prophets. It's really Amos and Hosea. And Amos, and I I say this to help you read Amos better, right? It's good to know that I I don't have no idea what Amos is talking about. Let me look at my notes, okay? But when I read Amos in the context of the end of the northern Israel kingdom, I'm getting to say, oh, okay. 
and, and we start to see Amos, and he begins in the days of Jeroboam II. <clears throat> his, primarily, his primary sermons were about judgment. And so judgment about exposing the fragile nature of their prosperity. Makes sense, doesn't it? You got Jeroboam, things are going well, we're in control. Even the South, <clears throat> you know, bends and bows to us. And we're, and we're starting to get some headway. People know that we have these territories. We got people on, we're, our boundaries are covered and, and they kind of got a little cocky. And Amos is preaching in a time in their arrogance. <clears throat> in, in a land for hundreds of years has not followed God and then they are prosperous and look and say, hey, why do we need to do anything different? And Amos is preaching in a moment where people do not want to hear, uh, judgment is fastly approaching, okay? And so when you hear things like idolatry there, especially uh, the worship of Baal, I mean, that's a fertility God, but we need to see it also as this power God, and then also as an agrarian society that the reason they would, pr- they would pray to Baal or Baal was for success in their crops, and so prosperity, right? And so this is a prosper God, and so why wouldn't they worship him? Because they were successful. And so that was Amos's focus. And so when you read Amos, think Jeroboam. Think 2 Kings 14, uh, at the end of 14 here. Hosea, probably the one of the most incredible overlooked prophet books in all of Scripture. I, I challenge you to read Hosea. Um, it is it's just an incredible story where, again, there's some tension about God that we serve. May I remind, and may I remind us that this is the God who is timeless. This is a God that we put our faith in who is in control, who is creator. When he speaks, creation happens. None of us are, even though we're in his image and we bear that, we are not him. And so this God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He is all-present, right? He is all-good. He's all-loving, this is the choices. And he tells Jose, he says, this is what I need you to do. I want, I want you to go and I want you to marry a promiscuous woman. And I want, to t- I want you to take her home. I want you to have her be your, your wife. And I want you to have children with her. And he says it because of this. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so... I want your life to be a parable to the people that I'm still desiring for them to repent and come to me. How can I get their attention? Amos was a focus on judgment, so to speak, and and we see this power of that. Hosea seems to be more of a, a focus a little bit on unfaithfulness. You know, and I think there's a little bit of a difference here. Judgment, 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 but you're unfaithful. And think of the covenant, Go back to even Moses and the Sinaitic Covenant, the idea of love the Lord your God. There is no other God. You have been unfaithful to me. I do not want to share my Godhead with anyone else. And that is a huge piece of Hosea. And uh, they have three children there. And, and I won't mention the names, but I'll, I'll mention what the names mean. The son means this, God scatters. And then he preaches about how God is going to scatter. He is talking about what is about to come. Because of your unfaithfulness, you will have, like my kids, one who God scatters, one that means not loved, and one that means not my people. 
that's a powerful picture of the judgment that is about to be laid before the people of Israel. And that gets us to chapter 17. So if you got your Bibles, let's, let's knock at this. And I want to read a couple of the sections there. As we look at Samaria finally falls. Get there. 2 Kings 17. A couple things are going on here. Hoshea finishes up there in verse 7. Um, after they've been exiled into Medes, right? They're there. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see how far reaching he goes? All of this happened, why? Maybe this is why he goes back to here, right? Because he's talking about, this is where I've taken you, you've cried out to me, I brought you back, I gave you a land, right? I am fulfilling my covenant from Abraham (coughs) to you, and this is how you treat me hundreds of years. And so we see this picture here. Who brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods and followed the practices of the nations. The Lord had driven out before them as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. And so the Canaanites, they kicked them out because of the gods they served and then they took their gods on, Asherah, right? He says, then the kings of Israel introduced all of this to us. Verse 9, the Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Notice the mention of Judah here. Judah's not done, by the way, but the proclamation is here. It's interesting to note in 2 Chronicles, there is no lament like this at the end for Judah. This is where it is. It's at the end of 2 Kings or chapter 17. He's starting to say not just Israel, but the judgment is on Judah as well. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance of the entire law that I command your ancestors to obey and that I have delivered to you through my servant, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them to do not do that. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for them two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the story hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And then, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunders until he thrust them from his presence. 
I would underline this chapter. I would highlight it. I would come back to this as, as a follower of Christ, as a leader of my home to my kids, not as fear, but as a reminder. You know, um, I, I have not grown up with anybody that has struggled with alcoholism in their family. But, um, you know, the, the, the evilness of that disease is that it seems to pass some of the genes to others. And in the difficulties of those kinds of things, and just sharing and counseling with people, there is a constant reminder by those who are trying to get out of the, the uh, slavery of that, of where they've been for the sake of not wanting to be there again. And, and I think as I wind up our time here and talk about this, that it is a, a reminder to us, the church today. This is words, because this is our story. <clears throat> you know, uh, this is who we would have been if we would have been in that place, by the way. I think a lot of times, we talked last night in our encounter group that, you know, that Adam's sin from the beginning, right? Or Adam's guilt, that's honest. That's not really fair because I think if I was there, I don't think I would have eaten that fruit. I, I know my wife wouldn't have done it, and so I probably wouldn't have done it either, you know? I, we love to think that way, but that's not the truth. Because at some point, when we learned how to sin, we, we moved there pretty quickly, Right? And again, this is where we will end up when we choose our choices, our idol worship of ourselves and what we want, and to walk completely away from what God has called for us. And that thrusting from the presence is just, wow, it's a powerful thing. And so when he tore Israel away from them, they made Jeroboam the son of Nabat their king, and Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit great sin. I failed to mention that whole point there. When you look through every one of those seven kings that we walk through in the text, it says that they, they were bad, maybe not as bad as the last guy, or you know, they were really bad. That's kind of how he lists them. None of them were ever good. But every one of them says, and they committed the, son, the sins of Jeroboam of Nabat. This one. They continued, and they did it, and they did it, and they did it, and they did it. And this is why, ultimately, they are sent into exile. There, at the, the end of chapter 17, there's a picture of Samaria being resettled. So a little bit more history going on, okay? And so, this is what kings do that are taking over countries. Assyria takes people out, puts people in. <clears throat> and it's an interesting story there. He puts these... Assyrians in, sometimes the text says that they're probably Arabians, nomadic people. So the Arabians come in, move into the northern part of Israel, and uh, they have no idea about God. They start worshiping their idols, and God sends lions <laughs> to devour them. Just one of those little stories, by the way, there. It's like, well, okay. They go, oh, well, we got we to do some history. What, we don't know the gods of this land. So all of a sudden... These, these preachers that got sent here, that I don't know how great of a job they were doing, got to go back and hang out with people that aren't their own in their own land and at least set up a shrine so that they would even at least give God <coughs> a podium in the country. And that's what happened. They didn't come over and this is the only way. Oh yeah, here's this God, so you guys take care. It's called syncretism. It's where we just make everything equal 
like, okay, it's okay what you believe. It doesn't matter. That's syncretism. That's exactly what was happening in that section there. Now, let me make my case for Isaiah. And uh, I'm going to close with a, these couple of stories here. Um, Isaiah 6 is this incredible, again, this is one of those chapters you need to know Isaiah 6. It is the calling of Isaiah by God. And there's this incredible picture of the glory of God and the worshiping of God and Isaiah is thrust into the presence of God. And it tells us in Isaiah 6, it says, in the year that the king Uzziah died, and I think probably Ryan will hit this the next week, Uzziah, the other name that we see in 2 Kings especially, <clears throat> is Azariah, Azariah. And so it's the same guy, different name, not sure why they have two different names, but he does. And so during that time, okay, Uzziah, Azariah was a, a Judah southern kingdom person. <clears throat> so we know that Isaiah was primarily in the south. But in the midst of the throes of Israel about to be finished and sent into exile, Isaiah comes on on the scene. And uh, I can't think of a, of a greater set of texts to read as we go into this Easter season, like Isaiah 53. But there's some beautiful passages in Isaiah about the birth, right, that he would be from Nazareth, just these promises of, of a Messiah, Emmanuel, the remnant. I mean, it's just beautiful Isaiah, especially right after 6. But in that section, it's, it's this incredible picture there of Isaiah and then God, who will go for me? And it's that famous line by Isaiah, here I am, send me, right? Um, and in the process of that, there is this quote. And in this quote, he says, the people see or have ears to hear, but don't hear and eyes to see, right? And don't see. And, 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 you'll, and that their hearts will become callous. He's describing Judah, but I believe he's also describing Israel. He says, there's a people who have ears to see, ears to hear and eyes to see, but they have not seen. And, and I say that into that section there because it's a section that Jesus quotes <clears throat> in the parable of the sower section. So in Matthew 13 and Mark 4, there is a section where they give us these parables, and then in the middle of those chapters, there's an explanation of why God uses parables. And when he explains why he uses parable, Jesus, talking about the kingdom, right, which is what we're talking about, by the way, the promised covenant, the kingdom, that Jesus says a kingdom is here. And he tells this parable, and then he gets away from the sower, and his disciples are sitting there going, okay, well, what does that mean? I have no clue. And then Jesus says these words out of Isaiah. Oh, they have ears to hear, but they don't hear. And eyes to see, yet they don't see. And, and it, it's, is this a judgment? Or is this a, an opportunity for those who don't see to finally see? And those who don't hear to finally hear? And I suggest from reading the text, because Jesus begins then to say, let me tell you what the sower means. And many heard that and went, I want to follow Jesus. And many went and said, nah, I don't want to do that. And that is our story today, right? That we're at a crux where we have the opportunity. And, and I think of our families, right? I think of the people that will walk in these doors on Sunday morning in, in bright clothing to celebrate Easter and uh, 
have a relationship with God that maybe they have or maybe they don't. And so some of your family is going to gather and you're going to want to go to church and, and they're going to hymn hard and you get them to church and you're just praying for what? For, to have eyes to see and ears to hear uh, so that they would move and repent and, God, and then all of a sudden God would reveal himself to them. This was the desire of the prophets like Elijah and Elisha, like Amos and like Hosea, like Jeremiah and all of those listed, like those who don't have books named after them. This was their hope and their challenge to a people uh, to hear that. The two final things there, I, I talked, there's a tension of mercy and justice in the dynasty of Jehu. You know, how does, there seems to be a double-sided sword a little bit to justice in covenant theology. Um, there's an indictment for the offense. So there's justice when somebody does something wrong, there's an indictment, right? Uh, but that also includes that when there's an indictment on somebody for something that they've done, there also seems to include in that a restoration to those who are victims as a result. So instance, if someone is driving and goes through a stoplight <clears throat> and hits a car and they get injured, right? There's an indictment. That person gets a ticket and this person, the victim, gets their car fixed for free, so to speak, and gets their hospital bills paid, right? So there's that side of justice. But there's also a justice that seems to, and here's where the tension is, also given in promises that are always kept by Yahweh. You know, that when God makes a promise, he fulfills his promise, right? And with Jehu, he fulfilled his promise, even though it was four generations of people um, who seemed to, didn't deserve the mercy of God. They were doing evil. They weren't changing how people worshiped. Uh, and they received this unmerited blessings and they, they received <coughs> um, positive things happen to them. And there's the tension of that. You see, when God makes a promise, he fulfills this. And even though to us it looks like it's unfair, by the way, that's a dangerous thing to think, that we have, a, we have the corner on fairness. So I'll leave that. Just, I want you to deal with the, the tension of that. And then finally, the failures of the covenant relationship that resulted in exile did not bring an end to the promise of God or his love for his people. We don't have time. First Peter 2, 4 through 10 is an incredible picture of us as the new king, the church. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Luke 22, when you take communion this week, this is Luke's uh, narration of Jesus with his disciples, and he takes the, the, the juice or the blood, and he says, this is the blood, and he says, of a new covenant. And this is what this is. God had a covenant they didn't keep, right? They couldn't keep it. And yet, the promise of Jesus, which is coming, is a new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, today is my anniversary. Uh, I've been married for 31 years. And so at this time, I was on my way to Colorado driving in this kind of crazy weather. So it's kind of a fun day as we kind of reminisced about that. Um, I have an Aunt Rose. I think Andrea knows Aunt Rose because I think you get a card, right? Aunt Rose is an aunt. She's, her husband worked at Ozark with Jim for years and Anybody that Rose came into contact with, all of our family, she is, has this incredible gift, I would guess, compassion, and she, for your birthday and your anniversary, writes a letter, and she does not miss. And I think I am not exaggerating by saying that she probably does this for at least 500 people. I am, that's not an exaggeration. I don't, 
anybody that Ozark, any of our family, and I have a big family, this is like my wife and I, since we've been married for 31 years, our kids, our kids' kids, little Sadie gets one in April, and she sends a letter, and it only gets her on time. It's crazy. I go home between work and, and tonight, and there's a card in the mailbox. How does that happen? I don't know how it is, but she's this card, and, and, and she, she writes this, and, and, and I just couldn't help but think of how does she remember so well, you know? May we remember our story so that we can live in the promise of a new covenant for a people who need to have ears to hear and eyes to see. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are so good. And it is, it is fun to get in your text and, and to see the rest of the Bible come to life, especially parts of the scripture that are sometimes where we stop. I mean, honestly, I'll read Genesis. That's pretty cool. Exodus got some great stories. And then we kind of lose me, and then I hit the prophets, and I'm done. But Father, that as I read Amos and Hosea and even Jonah and especially Isaiah and see it in light of a broken, a broken, separated people that you've chosen. And then I read Isaiah and I see the promises of Jesus. I see the promises of the root of Jesse building up. Father, even in 17 where we didn't get, you see a promise that even though I'm going to send Judah away as well, I'm going to bring him back. He's already got a plan. And so, Father, we, with anticipation, trust that you will return, that you will take us with you. And, Father, so we choose to be faithful to live out our days in glory and honor to you. Father, may we share from our lives, from our words, from your, your spirit, God, to our families, to our coworkers, Father, this blessed gift. And may we uh, speak well of you, and may they hear and see Maybe for the first time. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Try not to blow away.